Hi, Gary Zacharias here with the Apologist Bookshelf. The book that I pulled down today that I wanted to take a look at is the Holman Bible Handbook, H-O-L-M-A-N, Holman Bible Handbook. It's a, a wonderful book to look at, just to dip in and out of it. It's got tons of color. It's a Bible reference work, just great quality to it. Just feels good to hold it and to look through it. It's got uh, five major sections and has photos, of course, all the way through. First section is called the Bible, and it talks about the characteristics and the inspiration and the authority, the unity, and the canonicity of the Bible. And I think these days we, we want to know that our Bible uh, has the books that should be in there, and so that's a good section. The second area of the book is the Bible in its world, and that's the cultu cultural, geographical, and historical background of the Bible. And uh, I'm a geographical uh, fan anyway. Uh, give me a map and I'm happy. So it's got good information there. Third area is the Bible in the church. Things like how to read the Bible, how to study it, how to teach it, and how to preach it. And how it's been used through the history of the church. That's an interesting section to have. I haven't seen a lot of handbooks dealing with that. Number four, the Bible and its message. And that's about uh, something like two-thirds of this book. And that's where they have complete commentary of every book of the Bible and uh, outlines and study questions, <clears throat> which I think are really important to put study questions in there. So somebody that's considering becoming a teacher of a class or something uh, and has a hard time coming up with good thoughtful questions can use that section. Then the last section is called The Bible and the Christian Faith. And it's uh, the meaning of the Bible and the role of the Bible today in our culture and individual lives. So things like Christian doctrine, church history, ethical and moral issues, family relationships. So uh, this is a book I think people ought to consider. It's Again, it might be because it's not brand new, there may be some used copies that you can get a hold of that might be useful. The part I want to look at is uh, the creation of flood story, first of all. And I think that's really interesting. It says, uh, actually, the biblical creation account is paralleled by some ancient Egyptian accounts. And uh, they said the, there, there's a famous Mesopotamian cre uh, creation story called the Enuma Elish. And it praises the god Marduk. And uh, the god battles a sea goddess and things like that. And it said, well... Okay, it's true that both the biblical and these other ancient Near Eastern accounts do view the world as created, but they have such huge differences. The Egyptian and Mesopotamian gods end up looking pretty immoral, unlike the Holy One of Israel. Uh, the gods are extremely mythological in, in the story elements there. Uh, the biblical story is also unique as presenting God as pre-existent and distinct from the created order. So that's really important. The, the Judeo-Christian God is separate from creation, and he was there before creation. And even the concept uh, of humanity is totally different. The Egyptian Mesopotamian myths see humanity as kind of like an afterthought. Human beings are just a byproduct of uh, the gods who might want to just get rid of daily drudgery or something. But the biblical story has humanity as creation's climax, the image of God. So it's not probably just a case where the Bible account just reworked Near Eastern creation stories. But the story that I like, the thing that they focus on then in this other part of this section of the book, 
is the Mesopotamian flood story found in the 11th tablet of the Gilgamesh epic. It's a story of Gilgamesh and his friend Enkidu. They're searching for eternal life. And it's pretty, pretty close to the biblical story. The similarities are too striking, actually, probably to be coincidental. In both of these stories, God, or the gods, initiated the flood out of anger with humanity. But they inform that there's a main character that they will tell him about this coming flood and tell him to construct a massive boat to cover it with asphalt according to predetermined dimensions. And in both stories, the hero and the family get delivered from this deluge that lasts a long time. The hero sends out a bird to see if the floodwaters had abated. In both stories, the hero sacrifices and worships God or the gods after the deluge, and the hero gets praised for his faithfulness. So isn't that amazing? That's very, very close. But it's the demeanor of the God and the Mesopotamian gods that's so different. In the Bible, God is morally outraged by the perversity of the human race, but the gods in the Gilgamesh epic are kind of like high school juniors and seniors. They're, they're, uh, they goof around and they just get mad because humanity is making too much noise. In Genesis, God is gracious to save people in the ark. But the hero in the Gilgamesh story actually discovers the flood despite most of the gods. And at the end, the hero in the Gilgamesh story becomes a god quite different than Noah's experience. So, so and the, the, the size of the ark and things like that are different. But the similarities they suggest in this book argue that there's some association. So it seems to suggest that there was a historical flood since so many different descendants from different cultures remember that and uh, talk about it. Okay, so that's the uh, what the book, this book, The Holman Guide, what it talks about as far as uh, the creation of flood story. Now let's take a look at a New Testament story, crucial story, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the central event, isn't it, of the Christian faith. I mean, think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. We're just fooling ourselves. We're just wasting our time going through the motions of something that makes no sense at all. So, the, of course, the debate over the reality and the nature of this resurrection has gone on ever since the time of Jesus until now. So, the Holman book lays out nine different possible theories that have set forth to try to figure out what happened for this resurrection. So here they are. Number one, there's the swoon theory. Well, maybe Jesus didn't really die. He passed out on the cross and later revived and appeared to his followers. He got out of the tomb and showed up to the followers. So that's one possibility. That's been around a long time, the swoon theory. Number two is spirit theory. Jesus died, yes, but his body remained in the spirit and it was only his body remained in the tomb. It was only his spirit that showed up for the disciples. I hadn't actually heard that theory before. Here's a third theory, the hallucination theory. This is a really a big one these days. The disciples experienced mass hallucinations. They thought they saw Jesus, but they were mistaken. Here's another one that's extremely popular these days. Number four, the legend or myth theory. And if, you're, if you don't believe in the supernatural, if you don't think anything can happen outside of the material universe, then 
it's just a pre-scientific metaphor. Just there was some way of talking about Jesus. It wasn't a literal body bodily event. Just something significant about Jesus lasted later. So it was a legend. It was a myth. It was something created by later individuals. How about number five? There's the stolen body theory. Ah, the Jews came and they stole the body, or the Romans, or maybe the disciples stole the body. And then they said, see, Jesus has come back from the dead. Here's another theory. Number six, wrong tomb. The followers of Jesus went to another tomb by mistake. And they looked and they said, it's empty. He's come back from the dead. Seven, the hoax theory, that it was a complete, deliberate fabrication for profit to get your church off the ground. Number eight, mistaken identity that the disciples mistakenly identified someone else as Jesus after the crucifixion and burial. And then number nine, this is the one that they're going to want to land on, the Holman book, the literal bodily resurrection, that Jesus was supernaturally resurrected from the dead bodily, that the tomb really was empty, and Jesus really did show up and and, uh, appear to his followers. All right, so they deal with all these theories, and they say the evidence really overwhelmingly points to that theory number nine, that there was a literal bodily resurrection. And here are some of their reasons. See what you think. Number one, the naturalistic theories are weak and forced to manipulate the evidence due to being anti-supernatural. Yeah, those theories are pretty weak. If we have time, I want to go back and take a look at that, what the problem was. Number two, Here's another evidence on the side of the resurrection, the actual resurrection happening. Number two, the birth of the church during this time period. How do you account for the church exploding in growth? Number three, the transformation of the disciples from shaky uh, cowards hiding out into bold witnesses willing to die for their faith. You know, as some people say, uh, anybody could die for something they don't know about. But if you die for something that you know is a lie, why would you do that? Number four, here's another reason to to believe that there really was a resurrection. The change in the day of worship by people raised as devout Jews, they changed their worship from the Sabbath to Sunday. Why would they do that? These are good Jewish people, and they changed many of their Jewish beliefs completely. Number five, the testimony of women reported as being the first to see the risen Lord. Why is that important? Well, a woman's testimony carried hardly any legal value in the first century. So why would the reports show the women going unless this really happened and they were trying to be truthful, even though this would be something that might be laughed at? Oh, really? Women? Number six. Here's another point of support. The empty tomb and the articles of clothing left. I mean, think about that. That is huge. The empty tomb. Number seven, the unlikely nature of mass hallucinations. Boy, that's exactly right. I've read that in several other places that people don't have mass hallucinations, individual hallucinations. And then these hallucinations, if that's what they were, these reported appearances lasted 40 days and then suddenly and completely stopped. That's odd, isn't it? Number nine, there's a 50-day interval between the resurrection and the proclamation of it at Pentecost in Jerusalem. That seems odd, doesn't it? Number 10, the unexpected nature of the resurrection. What do they mean by that? Well, Jews expected a resurrection, but they expected that at the end of history. Now, here it's coming 
right in the in their backyard during their time period completely different from what the Jews had been told would happen number 11 the character of Jesus and his claims that he would indeed rise I mean think about Jesus he came across as a, a good person number 12 the fact that neither the Romans nor the Jewish leaders could disprove the resurrection they couldn't produce the body we're back to that empty tomb idea if Jesus is really in the tomb and the disciples are running around saying, he's risen, he's risen. All the Romans and all the Jews would have to do is go grab the body and say, nope, here it is. Here's another reason to believe in a true bodily resurrection. Number 13, the conversion of a skeptic like James and a complete antagonist toward the church, Saul. Why would these two want Jesus to come back? Why would they want there to be truth to this? They wouldn't. James was a real skeptic. He didn't believe in Jesus. And Saul was out persecuting the church. Why would they all of a sudden want to believe this? So they said it's impossible to explain these events and others apart from the resurrection of Jesus. So I think that's exactly right. I mean, let, let, let me go back then just for a couple of minutes because I think it's fascinating. Here are these other theories, the swoon theory. Really? Jesus comes to in the tomb, staggers out, goes to his disciples, and they go, you're the son of God. No, they'd say, you're a lucky person to survive that. They're not going to rush out and proclaim him to their own detriment as a risen savior. What about the hallucination theory? They've already covered that, that uh, people don't have mass hallucinations. The legend or myth theory, that's impossible because in Paul's letters, he has creeds. And these creeds go back to within a year of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they all proclaim Jesus rose from the dead. There wasn't enough time for legends and myths to be born. Uh, the stolen body theory, that makes no sense. Why would the Romans or the Jews steal the body? Why would they create problems for themselves? If the disciples stole the body, why would they be willing to die? They knew it was a lie. Uh, the wrong tomb theory, well, that doesn't work very well. They go to the wrong tomb, so then the authorities say, you guys were at the wrong tomb. Here's the body of Jesus. Um, mistaken identity, really? They mistook somebody else as Jesus? The disciples spent years with Jesus. So all of these other accounts don't work very well. If you want to have more of this kind of information, if you find that fascinating, Gary Habermas um, is the leading expert on the resurrection of Jesus, and, and I've reviewed his work. And uh, you've got to read some of his material. He's excellent. H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S, Gary Habermas. Okay, well, that gives you kind of an idea. Even though this book is not necessarily, this is that Holman uh, Bible handbook, even though it's not necessarily an apologetics book, it does have these apologetics portions to them, like I've uh, talked about today, looking at the story in Genesis, and then looking at the resurrection. So it might be something you, you would consider. It's uh, excellent material, good, good source of information. All right, well, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll do this again soon.